Welcome back, friends, to the Get a Grip on Lighting Conversation series. That's right, Greg and I wanted to produce episodes that we would want to listen to, and we got our good friend back, Henrik Clausen, who is the head of research at Fagerholt Global, and he founded the Fagerholt Lighting Academy, and he is interviewing today Mark Riddler, who is an award-winning international de- designer who leads the lighting profession from a- across the BDP. Now, I don't know what that stands for right off the top of my head now, but you're probably going to find out in the podcast. 35 years experience and is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Mark tells us about his fascinating journey in the theater. So, you know, leave you to that. But before we go, Greg, we got to get a little bit easier, buddy. We've got to go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. Now, really, they have an LED tube for just about every application. But you know what? I ran into one where they didn't the other day, or nobody does. A 5-foot T5. This is in a cove light. So what did I do? I had to look for options. They have their Groove. Their Groove is an LED module that has built in. It's almost like a tube, but it's like the strip of the LED that comes with the driver. And it comes in a variety of lengths, 11 inch, 22 inch, 33 inch, 44 inch. So those oddball lengths where a linear lamp might not fit, they've got this Groove module. High temperature rating, higher than a tube, which is awesome. And a Keystone driver that comes with it. So check those guys out. How come you didn't tell me about this before? I found out yesterday. I didn't talk oh, to you Oh, man. I just, I was, this guy had like 40 freezers and he was like calling me. He's like, I need this too. LED. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you can buy the fluorescent for $95 a bulb and I can import them from some weird guy in the U.S. for you. But now you could have gone LED with the Aluma Groove. Go to keystonetech.com. That's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H.com. And of course, the leader in lighting digital media, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's N-A-I-L-D dot org and of course join us but for right now listen to mark and and henrik i gotta get it right it's henrik henrik and mark on the get a grip on lighting conversation series i would like to welcome you to this little podcast mark it's um it's been a long time we've known each other and when i put you on my wish list for people to talk to i reflected over our first meeting back in 2005 where I got the opportunity to start Fagerhol Lighting Academy and I would really like to succeed with that. And I asked a few friends, people I respect in the industry, and you were one of them who invited me into your office in London 17 years ago. And you gave me some guidelines and said, I think you should do that, go in that direction. And I'm still there, I'm still running the academy. So your advice was well received and much appreciated. Now are you, probably also know that I'm teaching at the university in Copenhagen and a lot of my students keep asking, what does it take to become a really good lighting designer? And that's what I would like to open because in my perspective, you are one of the best lighting designers I know, but how did you get there? What does it take? Um, for me, um, my journey in light was, um, was almost accidental. Um, and I think that's quite common. Um, I was studying engineering at a university and, um, and not really enjoying the pure science side of it without any recourse to artistry. Um, and then somebody asked me um, to, um, to do a follow spot in a small studio production at university and um, said, what's a follow spot? But yeah, sure. Um, and um, that was a Peter Maxwell opera 
and I just fell in love immediately, not only with theatre and performing arts, but also just the way in which light. And when doing a follow spot, you have this visceral and immediate physical connection between the performer and you. And if you get it wrong, the audience can't see them. Um, but if you get it right, then you're helping that that process of of connection between viewer and object. And that really started then a, a fascination. My mind kind of exploded with the potentials of this. Um, and um, I started experimenting in our student theatre and it was a really uh, um, a small, very hands-on, easy to manipulate. And um, I started kind of working out the, from princ first principles what I thought light could do. And then I started reading. Da, 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 so, da. so there was no theory in the beginning. You were just jumping into it. You didn't. No. For me, it was, it was really, really hands-on. No theory. In fact, some of the theory I kind of didn't invent. It was already there. But I was working it out for myself. Um, really, really thinking about what light was, what it could do, what it, um, both physically but also emotionally. Did you share that with with the director, or was it just you feel? Did you feel this feels good, well, and you carried on? Or no, that's a really good, a really interesting question because um, because in theatre, particularly back then, um, visualization wasn't something that you did. When you were communicating about ideas and about your intent, it was all with language. Mm. And so it, it started developing a vocabulary of light, which wasn't only about intensity, direction, you know, and all of those kind of light words. Actually, it was about a connection and a cultural hinterland. So it was talking about films that we both liked or paintings or uh you know natural inspirations within the natural world so yeah very much it became about what was in your mind's eye a cultural reference point and a vocabulary to communicate those ideas to um to directors and designers but did you then choose afterwards to go to the academic world or did you stay in no in state sliding and move from state sliding into uh, into architectural lighting yeah um mm. yeah it's a standing joke in my department i'm the worst and qualified person in, in in the whole group i'm surrounded by people that have got masters and such like and um yeah i've just got an engineering qualification um but 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 mark if you if you look around the world let's say on a global plane how many lighting designers do you think have that background today because it's so uh, often that we to, talk about this. It was very common. Um, uh, and I, th I think that's particularly coming out of the 80s and 90s when architectural lighting really started kind of being a thing that really gained traction. I know there were practitioners before that, but it really started gaining momentum in that. And a lot of those practitioners came out of theatre. Um, because that had a, a naturally, um, and I, I know that clients were looking to light designs to provide a theatricality. So theatre emigres were kind of a natural place to to find them. When I went, when I left university as an engineer, I went to take some lessons at the School of Architecture because there was some conflict in language. I didn't know how 
I could do the lighting for the architects that wanted to create a certain space. So I attended that. And um, I also found out that what we are doing is extremely static compared to what you're doing, which is very dynamic and fluent in, in that. How did you manage to, to connect that, the, um, for the fluent experience to the static lighting that we very often do in, in the industrial it's, office um, it's, lighting? I mean, to be honest, it's, it's one of the things I really miss in architecture lighting is that, that kind of fluidity. Um, and particularly I miss music, uh, opera and contemporary dance, and uh, where you would actually be creating light scenes that might change, you know, every second. Mm. And, and it was it, it really, really dynamic, as you suggest. Um, and sure, I miss that. But architectural lighting has given me something more than um, or something different from performative lighting. And that's something to do with its democratic access. It's available to a much, much wider group of people. Um, and um, the, uh, the, the impact is different. The satisfactions are different. Oh. I, need, I need just to say, because very often I think that when I speak to people with stage lighting, you, you have a fixed, you, you know where you have your audience. It's like doing on a very narrow angle, looking at your, your audience, just looking at your stage and you know where you have them, where you have your... But in architectural lighting, in landscape lighting, in city lighting, you have to be sure people can pick any spot and look at your creation or facade lighting or whatever. Do you think that, does that create a different thought pattern for you? It, technically, yes, absolutely, for sure, because I mean, it's actually there's a whole series of angles and directions that are denied to you as an architectural lighting designer. But one of the joys of architectural lighting is that you not only have to view it from everywhere, but you are actually inhabiting it more than yeah. if you are a viewer in, in, the, in the stage. So there's, there's again, there's opportunities as well as, as you know, conflicts. Um, so technically, without doubt, yes, it's, it, it, it made me think about um, lighting differently, but in some ways, no, because actually it's still that, pr that, that process of rendering human within a physical environment to evoke an effect or an emotion or to facilitate a task. So you, you still have, you start with the human, no matter where you are, either stage or industrial or domestic or... Yeah, and it, 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 that is absolutely fundamental to my practice. And um, it's, it, that's, that's what BDP lighting is about. If it was about one thing, it was about that. You start with the human. So human-centric lighting is not just a buzzword for you. It actually means something. No, we kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like that. Yeah. You know, when I, when I stalk you a little bit on the web here, you, you have both gotten a lecture and a sustainability award. And some of my students say, but how do you get an award? What does it make that you got the awards that you have had under your professional time do you think the um forget about the awards they'll come what's important is enthusiasm belief and passion so nice for well instance, put. if your first your first question was you know how to become <laughs> a, a good lighting designer and i told you a story about how i discovered light and and uh, and my passionate response to it um to do the sustainability award that was because I was feeling 
uh, it was something that had interested me for a long time, embedded carbon in, in lighting, but it wasn't getting traction. Nobody was particularly interested in it. And then in 2019, four manufacturers sent me Christmas cards telling me what they were doing off their own bat to do with circular economy. And I thought, this this next year, I have to do something about this. So I actually instituted a, a research project for our own purposes, when I thought that would just inform the way we BDP chose to specify luminaires. But actually what transpired is it had much wider resonance and impact. And it's because of that. And then you talk about what you've been doing and what you've learning. And if, and, and if it's of interest, it gains momentum, it gains attention. And then that's when the awards come. That's cool. I'll remember that. Could we could we go to circular lighting? Because I've I've looked at your model and I've seen your presentations and I think it's it's really cool. What was the biggest challenges when you made that circular model? Um it came out of a conversation with a colleague of mine called Tom Niven, who's my associate in in London office, and we were talking. We were just talking about the subject, um, and then we had pens in. And I was trying to, we were trying to work some things out. We just started doodling, um, and um, and this this thing came out, and it was about the fundamental realization was that the circular economy has to be about projects, not product. And but as you soon had that you before before your research project. That was you started yes. doodling, and then you started. Okay, that's the flow. I'm sort of looking for how you how you did that. Yeah. So you start with a hypothesis, and then you test it, and then um, and then um, and you test it and test it, and then you talk to other people, and and if it stands up, it stands up. So that yeah, that was that was kind of the process. How long Talking time? Talking again, you see. Yeah. How long time did you? Uh, did it take you to to develop it until the level that it is today, where it looks very well thought through? About two years, but um, the initial diagram one afternoon. Um, we then were very lucky to actually have a project where we had, unfortunately, it didn't get it didn't get built, but um, a, a project with a really um, a client with a very clear brief around circular economy and allowed us to test our ideas and then um and then kind of we shared it with the studio the the first the the first year was a, sorry the first in the first year the the year was split into four the first quarter was about trying to scope it second quarter and third quarter was about developing the model and then the fourth quarter was about going to clients and stakeholders and actually testing it um, with a view to actually creating something at the end. Since then, it's actually just been about refining that model and um, our Marcoms, the latest one, um, was something that the wider BDP animal was interested in um, mm. and, um, and then crafted that into the, into the thing that's actually out there now. But, could, um, could you just take our guests through the stages, sort of, if you could do that by heart? Yes. Um, yeah. um, okay, it starts with the client, starts with the brief, then goes through design, um, it, through construction, operation, and then learning out of how you operate your own building reinforms a brief for a client, 
to start the next the brief for the next project hence the circle um the the project cycle circle um and that's the lot of debate is about um obviously the design because i'm a designer that's what i can have um some help in but the the dialogue is that there are within that circle broadly speaking four classes of people clients designers constructors and operators and the and the it, where it gets challenging but interesting is it's the communications and collaborations between those four parties that is necessary to make sure that no links in that circular chain get broken How, what is your responsibility to do that do you need to facilitate the process or does it flow or what do you think about the obstacles or the opportunities the the first thing the, the first responsibility is to talk to our clients um, and then to make it an option that they may or may not consider um, if they get it enthusiastic about it really wish to drive it forward then our responsibility and contribution is as designers um, and then the you know the the um the research paper sets out the various different ways in which as a lighting designer you can make an impact um and i think but the other the other kind of responsibility i think is about knitting together those various stakeholders which is kind of why we i was co-founded um the green light alliance which is essentially a network organization to get people that not necessarily always talk to each other to get involved to explore the issues no. um and try and actually drive some change through so um that's the third question you asked me where the answer is talking <laughs> well i um, guess that that's end. what that's what we're doing and it's it's great I, i would just you know you you said very clearly you are a designer and um i'm representing a manufacturer and we we really like these things when we lock a spec and we say now we can now we agree upon what we want to produce we can produce it at this cost to this delivery time and then sort of lock it. I've always thought that was intriguing and fascinating to do it and afterwards still have the flexibility to change minor things in a spec. But sometimes, you know, it's it's a completely it's a completely new spec. So how would that work in this model? It must be really crucial that you keep the spec. Yes, and that is actually um, at the moment um, because there's no really robust circular economy um, benchmarks outside of TM sixty six, which is obviously new. Um, then it's it, it's going to be difficult to hold a spec on equal and approved if you yeah. want those kind of circular credentials which is again one of the reasons why their client buy-in their establishment of the brief if this is important then there are certain things that flow from it and one of them is what you do with specs um, and whether or not you want to do go into value engineering or whether or not you are actually going to charge your designer to come up with the best value yeah um you know it's, not it's only, really a... not in terms of, not only in terms of capital but in terms of on cost and in terms of sustainability 
this value engineering term is, I don't know if it's used globally, but it's, it's really a, a nasty thing because the only thing that comes out of it is monetary value. There's no design value, no content for people in it. So I think it's, a, it's such a bad word that, um, that we have invented there talking yeah. about value engineering. It's normally a, uh, another word for cost cutting, and and then yeah. yeah, it's it's not great. But I suppose I've been fairly lucky with my clients is that um, if you if you can actually establish with them the impact on your original design, your original concept, um, as to what the implications of certain decisions will be, then it can be a value conversation. Um, and we have, in, in certain instances, stripped a lot of money out of projects while still delivering the essential core brief. So it's but, it's not impossible, but it, it's a more sophisticated conversation for sure. But that implies that the designer is still on board because whenever I en yeah. envision a value, yeah. the designer is gone. He's made his brief and then he's off the grid. And then it's just about doing evil equally and approved, as you say. And, and that's the problem because there's nobody fighting for the good light. <clears throat> yeah, no, absolutely right. And uh, I mean, though, where those sophisticated conversations happen, it's where the client wants you still on the project all the way through. But yeah, I get that. But to me, it seems that different places in the world, it's different change yeah. or different not change what's it called, uh, connectors in the value chain. In Sweden, it's very <laughs> typically electrical engineers. In Denmark, we have very powerful architects. In England, it's lighting designers. In Germany, it's uh, it's like some wholesalers. So it's it's very... Do you see a picture how the world looks in this way that in some countries, it's one chain, one link in the chain that makes all the decisions and in other countries, it's other chains, and how do you adapt your model to that? Yeah, it's you see it that way. Um, I do. Yeah, no. Each each country has different cultures as to how they do it, um, and um, yeah, um, I'm, I suppose I'm fortunate. I, we tend most of our work tends to be in the UK, not exclusively so yeah. by any means, um, but then if we are being asked to join internationally then it's normally our opinion is is valued and quite frequently we are all the way through um so i've i, I just guess i'm i'm lucky but you're right that the different countries have different different cultures and sometimes that works better for the end result and than others for sure it's it's at least different that's for sure but but where, what i found was in common in my experience is that when the owner the guy who's sitting on the wallet is at the table the focus goes more in the, the design more in the human-centric lighting direction than cost saving but it, it's 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 rare. Yeah, no, I mean, that I think that's, that's true. I think that's. I mean, I think you've actually struck on something really, um, really powerful there. It's just if there is a single intelligence driving the project, someone who cares, somebody who's got emotional skin in the game, um, mm. and um, and you will be there together 
that client person, that designer person at the opening, then the relationship is is entirely different. And and it yeah. and it becomes one of trust and and respect rather than a committee whose members will oscillate, who will have disparate um terms of reference and and targets and and cost will be you know way up there and that's more difficult that that's mm. absolutely the case yeah for sure now um i would like to change the subject a little bit because um i think it's super interesting with 3d printing of fixtures if i just keep that headline what are your initial comments to 3d printable fixtures it's always really excited me. I can remember I had a conversation with Bob Bohannon about this, um, God knows how many years ago, um, <laughs> a long time ago. Um, and he was he was getting really, really enthusiastic about it. And you're saying, this is going to be the future, this is going to be the future. Um, and um, I, the appeals are that if you can take, well, there's massive opportunities, all sorts of different ways. So I'm sorry, I'm going to, shut me up if i start burbling on no no local manufacturer obviously has um real appeal um its contribution to design for manufacturing assembly it has massive appeal um in terms of um the way in which design for product gets disseminated so it is is really exciting but also quite a challenge as to how you protect copyright and um um, all those kind of really important um, questions, um, and I think that I'm I'm slightly concerned about the potential toxicity of some of the processes. I don't know enough mm. about the detail of the process to understand actually whether or not it's it's good or not. But additive manufacture, as opposed to subtractive manufacture, on the face of it, would appear to be a more um, efficient, less wasteful of resources process. But when, when we think about sustainability and a lot of people say we want to source our products nearby and we build like two 40-foot containers and put them on the parking lot and then we actually produce the fixtures just at the doorstep. What do you think about that argument? I think that's really exciting. Um, it probably, yeah, I mean, they're really exciting. Those 40-foot Arctics will probably not be on site. They will probably be in the off-site manufacturing plant that buildings are now getting made in and then mm. brought to site and, um, you know, kind of assembled on site. So, um, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's the way it's going to go. But you can think of the speed of innovation. I mean, you were just saying about, you know, iterative... Um, uh, the specification and improvements on products. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not, if you're not committed to really expensive and inflexible tooling paradigms back in some, you know, some centralized factory, but you can yep. actually update. It's almost like you can update the software, or the patterns, or the models, or you know. And you know, oh, you want a slightly different blue one today? Yes, fine, that's it. <laughs> yeah, hit send, done. Um, or do you know what I mean? I, I, I think it sounds it's wildly exciting. But is there anything that rings a bell as a on a sustainable perspective? This is really bad, 
about 3D printing, for instance? Or is there anything where you say now you've it's just about said toxicity. the it's, it, okay. it's about the details of toxicity and um, and whether or not it is actually more energy efficient. And I I would be I would want to be convinced, continually convinced about that, um, yeah. before I, you know, fully endorsed it. But it, given the fact it's not 100% mature by kind of really it's not even close to being 100% mature yet. Um, I think it I've I've got my mind is very alive to the potential and the excitement wow. of it. But how would your dream scenario look for for a um, designer who, for a manufacturing side, so, no, sorry, your dream scenario for a, a look through the sustainability glasses, when you mm. write in your paper that you want to source nearby, it also limits your choice of suppliers, I guess. And um, I would really like to go into that, that what do you think about that? Because now we say, oh, we have the entire world. We can buy fixtures everywhere. And um, what you do is like, you now say, no, I want to source it nearby. And what does nearby mean to you? Um, if you, yes, it does, but it just becomes another design factor. So it's not that you would, you would only source local equipment to the detriment of every other design criteria that applies. But if there are two products and one's manufactured in a country or in continent, as opposed to X continent or X country, then that is a, that's in its favor. So I think where, where mm -hmm. we'll come to is which particularly when you start doing the kind of evaluations that you do which TM66 are, are now beginning to introduce, or even whole life co carbon costing, the equations will will flex so that an extremely efficient luminaire that's sourced further away may actually be the more sustainable position solution that, than a, a local one that has been uh, that is not as efficient. Say, but I guess we are still pretty far away from that because when I look at our life cycle cost it's it's still more than 60% of the total carbon footprint is still generated during lifetime yeah. so we would love to work more with controls that actually switches off or dims the light because just our freight and transport costs and raw material is very Typically low compared 1 to or less yeah, yeah exactly no, that's what, yeah but the, and and that's why actually carbon I don't think carbon embedded carbon is is a main driver for the circular economy in lighting. Um, I think it's much more to do with resource scarcity and toxicity and pollution. That's what makes yep. it an imperative. It's not actually carbon. And the 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 other thing that you were you were saying about all of the carbon within ninety nine percent is in use. Yeah. That's true until you decarbonize the grid. At which yes. point, none that's of right. the carbon involved in the, in our, the, in our the biggest, that's, 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 that's 20 just, years away. Just need to know how you handle the, 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 the carbon mix or the energy mix, really, because in some, in some countries we have still coal and oil burning, and otherwise it's hydro plant solar wind so it's it's very depending do you take that into consideration when you plan 
for where the building is, the the energy mix. We will do, yeah, no, sure, yeah, certainly. Um, because we we see uh, a lot of different weather. We please. The carbon calculations are. Uh, we're only beginning to do them. I mean, there may be other practices that are more advanced than us in that respect, but we're only on the beginning of that journey. But where the where the carbon where the electricity comes from, certainly in terms of in use, is very location dependent because it's very dependent yeah. on the carbon or it, um, the electricity supply. Yeah, I get it, and it is still it is still a big a big thing. Now, having talked about all about the things we've talked about, now where do you see the biggest bottleneck in making a circular economy work in lighting? The biggest, sorry. The biggest, the biggest bottleneck, or the biggest problem in in getting the circle spinning. Um, I think operation. Um, I think it's going to be difficult, but I can see clients already getting really enthusiastic about this in terms of brief. They just want to know how they can do it. Um, I think the designers, design communities on it, um, manufacturers, I think. Are actually leading the way which is great because normally no that's not fair <laughs> i think sometimes manufacturers are characterized as that they have to be carried kicking and screaming into the new world um and that's absolutely not the case in this one that i think they're leading the field and 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 are really really proactive um and i can even see if you've got the client and the design team on board actually making sure the contractors are there as well because and, and the conversations i've had certainly with some of the better contractors the bigger ones um uh they know it they get it they they see the problems and the challenges but they i don't think there's much resistance i think the the real problem is 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 in operation because you can create you can specify a sustainable product and you can even get it installed in your building but if it's just then chucked in the bin when at end of life mm. the whole thing um a whole thing falls down and it's about how you get product reused recycled um not recycled um, repurposed or recycled at last yeah. recourse and just never ever landfill it that's really hard well when when I've looked at what you've been doing recently, where with track systems and you snap fixtures into it, it's easy to move. I I love that idea, but you don't talk about fashion or trendy products or anything. It looks like you think that some of the products can last for thirty years, which they can. But will we still have round fixtures with oval shades in thirty years? What about that part? So I did talk about aesthetics a bit um, because. Uh, we have or historically i've tried to hide my light fittings as much as possible by embedding them into I know. Yep. Um, into architecture um and actually this if you're going to dis disaggregate lighting from the fabric of the building then it starts becoming much more apparent um but, and and therefore you need to have that aesthetic debate both with your design partners but also your client so aesthetics but is is an important part of this debate your point is what about changing aesthetics well i think swapping yeah. out one fixture for another is fine as long as you don't put it in the bin 
if you mm. can take that fixture and re reuse it somewhere else or <laughs> repurpose it um uh then then that just that that becomes you know um something but also i kind of i wonder whether or not will fashion really drive it that hard i think that that's exactly I, what i'm getting at because i'm i'm i don't know myself i don't really have a feel for that i don't think people operators that are happy and familiar with their building will just go you know what I don't like like fittings that shape anymore. I'm going to rip them all out and replace them. I think they will do. But, but I've got a different you... use for this building now. I now need it to do something different, um, and that might be brand, or it might be function, um, or it might be some other driver. And at no. that point, then the demands upon the lighting changes, and absolutely, then fashion may produce a different solution that is then brought on board. But if you think about shop lighting, because we've had some customers in, in various countries that actually would like a little bit less quality lighting because it's only going to be used for three years, then we'll, then we'll dump it anyway. So we don't want a good heat sink. We don't need a high class reflector. We just need something, you know, because it's in, in fashion and in shop lighting, we will replace it anyway. What do you think about these, for instance, from, from office building schools, universities versus shopping malls, and retail? I think retail is a, <laughs> is a bit of a challenging sector. Um, uh, it all, always has been. But if, if, the, if the paradigm is we want the cheapest possible way of getting far too much light so that I can throw it away in two years' time, no, that's not sustainable. No. Um, <laughs> But then there are there are other retail there are retailers out there that don't that's not the way they operate and they no. and it, and it sustainability is becoming very much more part of the public discourse. It will mm. the the green credentials of brands, including retailers, is becoming more important. Um, and um, so. I, I I don't think that kind of ultra wasteful model no. will gain favour in the future. Obviously, some no, that's, will, some will if be faster these... to table than others. But... No, but when we talk about conscious customers, I think it's customer driven. They, I don't want to shop in a shop that treats their inventory like that or something. That's probably a, a powerful driver as well. Um, yeah, I think when so. we think about. When we think about wholesalers or, or or people who are selling fixtures over the counter, when do you think sustainability really will hit that part of our lighting industry? When we have like we have big in the U.S., big in Germany, where it's um, it's more like the wholesaler style or the lighting supplier. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Um, I think part of the problem is LETs. Um, that it used to be that when you think about it, you used to have a downlight and you used to put a lamp in it. Most people called them bulbs, but let, let's stay professional and call them lamps. Yeah. You, the industry could drive efficiency and did drive efficiency in in those light sources, and and. And they, and yet they were still sold as commodities. The problem with LEDs is they promised and delivered much, much higher levels of efficiency. 
but in a really sophisticated and technically difficult way. Mm -hmm. So now you're talking about it's much more difficult to commoditize efficiently yeah. and sustainably. And and I think it's going to take a while for the industry to, to get its head around that. But for instance, but, but, okay, if you, if you just, let's, as an example, take a, a downline. If you have a, a, a magnificently fused chip on board, fused to a heat sink, brilliantly efficient, but it has to be a sealed unit relative to, say, a GU-10 or a, a lamp that you can replace or um then suddenly you've got something that's a lot more easily um understandable by the consumer and also sold by the um by the sales agent be that wholesaler or retailer so i think we've got to work this through and i think there will be professional products products that can stay sophisticated and difficult because there's a there's an industry that's tooled up to understand the advantages but when you get to retail then um then and wholesale in that market and to an extent i feel that also includes non-specified product so yeah exactly I mean where you get an electrical contractor comes into a wholesaler and say i want 15 of 600 mil lights please yep that needs to that needs to work through better to become sustainably commoditized do do you think that a wholesaler or a lighting distributor who really say look into circular lighting or serious sustainability would have a competitive advantage over his colleagues in the industry yeah it, uh, that, you, you've hit on a really really important point haven't you is there's no money in it why would you do it um and the mm. own, the own, the answer to that is either brand or regulation the only yeah there's only two you're either going to push someone or you're going to pull someone but um if if there's a significant competitive disadvantage then um that's going to be a problem well, now I'm. That's nice to hear that you can answer everything, and you still have won an award, <laughs> even though you can't answer everything. No, but it's it's super cool because I've thought I've thought a lot about it, and I just needed to share it with you. But now we have talked for forty minutes, and I have a a roundup question because I want. I'm so curious. What is the next big thing for you? What are you looking forward to for the next five years? Um. There's lots of things, but no, nothing kind of burning. Oh yes, it's this one. Um, it's okay. it's carrying on my trying to design great environments for people, um, uh, and I see all sorts of opportunities. There's data is one modeling the the the, the coalition of visualization calculation. Communication, um, design for manufacture and assembly. Um, we we've only just started the circular economy thing, so we've got a long way to go on that one. But, um, and I suppose, yeah, I mean, it, but you're a bit you're a bit all over be, the place right now, isn't it? <laughs> I am a bit. Okay. But I, I, fundamentally, it's about people and trying not to 
and, and addressing the climate crisis. That, those, yeah, but those these two, two things, things. But they are driving in the opposite direction, I think. When I look at it, you can either have fixtures with a very low carbon footprint and very high energy efficiency and crappy lighting, or you can have really good color rendering, excellent spectral distributions, all that stuff, and have really high light quality, but it comes as a price. So my dilemma is often, do you want to save the world or do you want to make nice surroundings for dementia people in hospitals or whatever, so that they can get benefit and get a worthy life or good lighting for life? What do you think about that dilemma? Or well, that's the designer's dilemma, isn't it? It's it's trying to square the circle, or um, or you know, the, the the sustainability has always been about triple bottom line, and that's about something that's financially feasible, environmentally um, responsible, um, and um, in terms of the its function, um, it, it you know it, it it provides that function, um, because if you don't provide the function, there's no point it being cheap or utterly sustainable. I mean, the most, for instance, the cheapest and most sustainable way of lighting a building is not to put any light in and just use That's it during right. the day. So, yeah. um, you know, there is all, and there always has been that dilemma. Um, I think designers can bring solutions where you minimize the amount of stuff. And so it's, it's about a fine. You're trying to find so, a delicate balance somewhere in the middle or. Hmm. Yeah. Or are yeah. you? Yeah. No, that's just that. that. Okay. Cool. So, um, having uh, maybe that was a bit, a bit uh, clumsy, clumsy closing on my side. But it's uh, it's really good to talk to you, and it's we could we could babble on forever. I think it's so inspiring to hear what you think about all these things. So I'll hope that we'll meet once this corner situation is over again and we can be have nice a to do it face to face somewhere. wouldn't it it really yes. would it really would so um the first drinks on me. <laughs> that's that's a good one i'll take that but i'll thank you very very much for participating here today and um, and hope you will take care and stay healthy and we'll see each other soon again yeah real pleasure thank you very much thank Mark. you thank you bye-bye Keystone Technologies with the Aluma Groove coming in hot. Go to K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-T-E-C-H dot com, Greg. Well, you went there, and then I just learned doing this, doing the damn ad about this amazing product. That's right. The Aluma Groove 11-inch, 22, 33, 44, so oddball lengths, but they're also connectable end-to-end -end so that you can make it whatever length you want with those dimensions. 27K, 3K, 4K, 5K also. That was my other oddball part. It was, it was a 3K color, 5-foot T5. Yuck. But I found it. Oh, yeah. You got to you gotta go to keystonetech.com right away. Keep it in easy for you. That's right. If you're a lighting distributor, you got to get in with Keystone. Come on now. And, of course, the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. Go to naild.org. And we got nothing but love and thanks for Henrik Clausen. Mark Riddler for producing this show for us. Really enjoyed it, guys. Looking forward for mo to more from Henrik once a month, probably. Bye for now.